Well, good morning again, church. Great to see you. I'd love for you to open your Bibles now to the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, however your Bible has it written. And that is on page 909 if you're using the church Bible. We're going to do a bit of framing today. Uh, we're, we're at Acts 21 in our journey through the book of Acts. And from this point on, we are witnessing the march of the Apostle Paul through both the Jewish and then the Roman legal systems. In these last uh, eight chapters, Luke is basically working two points. He is showing us, first of all, how it came to be that the church, that Christianity was rejected by the people from whom it originally sprang. And he is showing also how, in the providence of God, the attempts to arrest and silence Paul actually led to the gospel being preached at the very heart of the Roman Empire. So we're going to be developing those two points, uh, scene by scene, story by story, over the next couple of weeks. But before we do that, I just thought it might be helpful if we provided a bit of a framework, if we zoomed out, as it were, and took a look at how the apostles related to hostile civil government in general in the book of Acts. So I can make a bit of an analogy. I'm sure you've heard before. You've probably heard me say it or somebody else say it. Um, sometimes that's a good way to tell stories. So in the Bible, very often, they... they it's called recapitulation. That's the fancy term for it. It means they, they tell a story twice, but from two different vantage points or two different zooms. So in Genesis 1, you have the story of creation, but it's told on sort of max zoom, wide zoom. It's the story of the creation of the entire universe. And, and that helps prepare us to, for the zoom in. Chapter 2 is the zoom in, where we zoom in on the story of the man and the woman in particular. It, that speaks a little bit. It gives us a bit of a framework from which to better understand the, the story that we're focused on with Adam and Eve. Similarly, uh, I think that if we take a look at the story as a whole, if we zoom out and, and look in general at how the apostles related to hostile government, we will be better prepared uh, to glean what the Lord intends us to glean from each of these stories moving forward over the next eight chapters. That's the goal anyway. And uh, I am going to attempt to be brief in this summary overview, and in fact, a little briefer than I had originally intended, uh, because I think it would be helpful to leave a little bit of time at the end of the message for some pastoral counsel. Because this, this isn't just an, an intellectual exercise. Uh, maybe as I laid that out, you leaned forward intellectually, in, in your mind. You're like, good, I'd like to hear about that. I have some questions about how to relate to a hostile government. But it's not just intellectual, is it? it this touches us emotionally, psychologically, experientially, because all of the sudden, we feel here in Canada, as Christians, as though we are on trial. We feel like the government is, is out to get us. Like the Apostle Paul, we feel all of a sudden like we're surrounded by adversaries on every side. And so I think we're going to find some counsel here, and I hope also some encouragement. So let's get started. As we walk through the book of Acts, as we fly over, maybe better to say, from the 10,000-foot level, I'm hoping to make five observations about how the apostles related to hostile government. First observation I want to draw your attention to comes from a story that we read fairly early on in this series. So if you've started at uh, Acts 1-1, just flip forward a few pages to Acts chapter 4. Oh, isn't that a good sound? Oh, it's the flutter of angels' wings. All right. <laughs> now, you'll remember that in Acts chapter 3, Peter had healed a man who was lame from birth, and that caused uh, quite a stir, quite an uproar. 
and the Jewish Senate, that's what the word Sanhedrin means. Some of your Bibles will have Sanhedrin, some will have Senate. It just depends on whether you're going to translate that old funny word or not. But the Jewish Senate was very upset about what was happening and about the uproar in the city. So they had Peter and John arrested in verses 18 to 20 of Acts 4. Luke tells us they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So the first observation I want to make then is this. The apostles recognized the legitimacy of civil government. Notice what Peter says. Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. So you must judge. Peter doesn't say, you have no right to judge me. I'm an apostle. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. Who do you think you are to talk to me about whatever disturbance you think I've created? He doesn't say that. He doesn't say you have no right to judge me because he knew full well that they did. Peter understood that he was under their authority, even though he disagrees with them. He has a very different perspective than them on this issue. Peter understood that just because he had become a Christian did not mean that he had been somehow taken out of the world. He was still here. As long as he was here, he was going to remain subject to civil authority. Peter lived that truth. And he preached that truth to his people. He said in 1 Peter 2, 13 to 14, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. The Apostle Paul said the same thing to his people. He said in Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, interestingly, Peter and Paul said those things. You might say, well, back in those days, of course, the magistrate was, very, was more favorable to Christianity. Mm, not so much. Check your history. When, when Peter and Paul said those things, actually Nero was Caesar of Rome, arguably the most evil leader in the history of the universe arguably the most overtly hostile leader to the Christian faith. And yet even still, Peter and Paul recognize that they have an office from God, they have an authority entrusted to them by God, and as such must be respected. Now, in tension with that, we have our second observation, which is that the apostles understood that their ultimate loyalty was to God. We can see that in the, in the next chapter. Often if you hear something in the Bible that offends you, you know what you should do? Keep reading. It is, it is often balanced in the very next story. So if you're sitting here going, well, I just, I just can't imagine. I don't, I don't think that's right. Well, hang on. Settle down. Here comes another story. All right, so in, in Acts chapter 5, the apostles are arrested again for preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus, which, of course, they had been told to do by Jesus. And when they stood again before the Senate, they were told, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. And yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. By the way, if I ever do get arrested, I, I hope this is the charge that I hear read about me in the court system. What an honor it would be if the crown prosecutor said, 
Paul Carter, we told you not to preach and teach in Jesus' name, and yet here you are filling this country with the gospel. What an honor that would be. And if that happens, I plan to respond exactly the way that Peter responded here on behalf of the apostles by saying, we must obey God rather than men. So yes, Peter taught and modeled proper respect, proper submission to authority. He was respectful to Caesar and Senate. And yet, he recognized that there was a limit to the authority given to civil government. And it did not extend to contradicting the commands that were given by God himself. See, the government is a fellow minister with the church under God. That's what's taught in in the Bible. Jesus said that, right? He said, remember, render unto Caesar what is Caesar and unto God what is God. So there's a sphere here, but both the spheres are under the sovereignty of God. And, And both authorities, both ministers, Paul in Romans 13 calls the magistrate, the government leaders, calls them servants, ministers of God, meaning he gives them the same title he, he gives to the elders of the church. They're ministers of God. You're ministers of God. And you'll both be held accountable by God for how you've executed your commission. But that's the thing. As, as parallel authorities, they having their sphere, we having our sphere, we need to understand that both are under the authority of God. And therefore, this sphere over here doesn't actually have the authority to tell us to do things that are contrary to what God has told us to do. So, plain and simply, if the government ever forbids us to do what God commands or commands us to do what God forbids, then we will have to say no. And that's what we see the apostles doing here. And they pay a price for that. In Acts 5, 40 to 42, it says, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So that's what happens when uh, you get in a conflict, when the church gets in a conflict with the civil authorities. Because, of course, The civil authority has been given the sword. Now, the church has been given the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, but the civil authorities have been given the sword of steel, which is the right, the lawful use of violence. So when church and government are at odds and come into conflict, the sword of judicial violence is inevitably wielded against the cross-carrying church. And you need to be prepared for that. The apostles were. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer on behalf of the name. Praise the Lord. Third observation we can make from the book of Acts is that the apostles made wise and discerning use of their legal rights. We saw that a couple of weeks ago in Acts 16 when the apostle was in Philippi. You remember Paul and Silas were ministering in Philippi. And there was an uproar and an angry mob uh, sought to lay hands on the apostle Paul. And so the magistrates, hoping to appease the angry mob... Uh, actually seized Paul and Silas, beat them with rods, and uh, put them in stocks in the local prison. When the magistrates, uh, the next day, having you know, calmed the crowd, 
sent a message to release them, the Apostle Paul questioned the legality of the entire proceeding. He said, they've beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Isn't that an interesting story? Paul reminds the civil authorities that their authority, their powers are limited. And that they also are responsible to act in accordance with the law. As a Roman citizen, the Apostle Paul had a right to a trial before punishment. You could, a, a Roman magistrate could, could grab a subject person, right? Uh, an, uh, an angry Greek or even an angry Jewish person. By a, uh, an act of providence, Paul happened to be both Jewish and a Roman citizen. And so a, a Roman magistrate might grab a, you know, a passing uh, Parthian or a passing Greek or even a passing Jew and, and scourge them just to shut them up and move them on their way. You can't do that with a Roman citizen. A Roman citizen had a right to a trial before any punishment was given out. And Paul said, you skipped that part and went right to the punishment, and that's illegal. And he was right, and they knew it, so they came and apologized to him. And then what's interesting is, to make a point, they asked the Apostle Paul to leave, and he came out of the prison, and what did he do? He didn't actually leave. He's like, actually, I have a few errands to run. You're welcome to follow me while I do them. P.S., my errand is to go to a Bible study at Lydia's house. You're welcome to sit in. And, and he went and he spent time with the local Christians so that the local Christians would see that the magistrates were limited in their authority to oppress the church. Paul wanted everyone to understand, right, that there's limited authority here and there is legal process here. And that's not disrespectful. That's not seditious. That is legal, prudent, moral, and wise. So there is nothing unfaithful about making appropriate use of the law to restrain our civil leaders. Because the law is there for the protection of all people, Christians included. And so that's why I would argue it is a good thing that some of the arrests and fines that were handed out during COVID are now being reviewed and challenged in the courts. While we didn't necessarily adopt the same approach as some of these other churches during the pandemic, we did not agree with pastors being arrested for acting according to their conscience. So it's good that those charges are going to be reviewed in a court of law. And if they are found to be excessive, then they'll be dropped. If noncompliance is done respectfully and conscientiously, then when punishments are given out in an unequal fashion or in an excessive fashion, they should be reviewed according to the law. That's good. That's good. See, sometimes the law is a sword that strikes us. But properly wielded, the law can be a shield that protects us. The apostles understood that, and so should we. The fourth thing we can say here from our big picture survey of Acts is that the apostles learned that legal proceedings could be used for the glory of God. I'm absolutely sure that the apostle Paul chafed under his imprisonment. He was a busy guy. He was an active guy. He was the, you know, the ever-ready bunny. Ever-ready? What is it? Energizer bunny. I can't remember what bunny he is, but you know the guy I'm talking about. 
ever ready. What is it again? Energizer buddy. There it is. Good. Just had a senior moment. Wonderful. My first. <laughs> Many more to come. Hold on. Strap in. But I'm sure that was terribly annoying for the Apostle Paul to be shackled and, and held down like that. And he wouldn't have asked for it. I'm sure he didn't like it. But at the same time, he did come to understand that it, it served the gospel in some really remarkable ways. Paul's goal was to preach the gospel in the heart of Rome. He had his mission trip paid for by the Roman authorities. He, he had an audience before all the most influential people in the Eastern Mediterranean world. And we're going to see that. We're going to see him having interviews before governors, before kings, and, and ultimately in Rome awaiting a hearing before Caesar. It's a remarkable thing. Paul even talks about how he had an incredible witness, incredible ministry to the imperial guards. In Philippians 1, 12 to 14, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are more bold to speak the word without fear. Isn't that interesting? Now, all of this, of course, was foretold by Jesus, the burdens and the blessings. In Luke 21, 12 to 13, he said, They will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you'll be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. And so while the apostles did not seek out imprisonment, and I think we have to be careful about that too, right? Getting arrested right now is a great way to build your brand. We, we don't see, though, the, the apostles seeking that out. But neither do we see them losing faith when they did find themselves in chains. They understood that their chains would actually open some doors that would otherwise have remained closed to them. And since they cared more about the mission than they did about their personal freedom, they learned to take advantage of these opportunities. You know, we often complain here in Canada about how little the government seems to know about Christians and how little they seem. Sometimes it feels like they don't remember we exist. I, I, I complained about that uh, many times. Uh, <laughs> I won't throw Brent under the bus. I'll just say I complained to Brent, and that is true. I complained to Brent over the course of the pandemic many times. I'm like, does the government not know that like 20% of Canadians go to church? Like, what in the world? Uh, because, uh, you know, all the... Um, the protocols would come out during the pandemic, and, and you'd find out on Thursday or whatever that, okay, this is it for movie theaters, and this is it for businesses, and this is it for barbershops, and you'd read down, and not a word about churches. I got news for you. More people are in church this morning than are getting their hair cut, right? And so what in the world? And you'd have to go, and you'd have to call somebody, and then they'd send you an email, and then maybe there'd be a link to something, and then you'd just make it up, right? Like, and many, 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 many times over the course of the pandemic, we said, it's like the government doesn't know we exist. And then everything you hear from the government, it feels like they don't really know anything about us. It feels nowadays like we're constantly being misrepresented by our own government. And that's frustrating, right? And, and all for believing. Sometimes they will label us as, as haters and as far-right extremists. That happened in the last couple of weeks. All because we believe the same things that every single founding father in this country believed 156 years ago, and the vast majority of our friends and neighbors believed 28 minutes ago. 
And, and yet it feels like now we're constantly being misrepresented. But you know what might change that? A few high-profile court cases where good Christian doctors, for example, say get fired and, and then make wise use of the law. So not hard to imagine this happening. Good Christian doctors in this country getting fired, say, for example, for not administering medical assistance in dying, making good use of the legal process to appeal that, and as a result, having the opportunity to preach the gospel before courts and before governors and before prime ministers and before the Canadian public, I'm sure that would be very painful for them, but very helpful for the cause of Christ in general. The same benefit might come about as a result of a few Christian high school teachers being fired for refusing to be complicit in the mass mutilation of perfectly healthy adolescent bodies due to our mass hysteria in this culture around gender. Imagine if a Christian teacher was given the chance to argue for the goodness of God's design, to speak passionately, winsomely, and biblically about the beauty of gender and the goodness of marriage and family in the highest courts of the land. Again, incredibly painful for them, but massively helpful for the cause of the gospel in this country. Are you capable of that perspective? The apostles were. Now, like any human being, of course, they preferred freedom to imprisonment, but they learned to trust in the plan and providence of God. And so must we. And then lastly, in the book of Acts, we can see clearly that the apostles experienced the government being wielded as a weapon of the enemy. As human beings, we default to easy positions, right? And so, you know, this is an overgeneralization, but there are lots of Christians who say, well, Romans 13 says you've got to submit to the government, so what are you going to do? And then there are lots of Christians who say, well, Revolution, or Revelation 13 says that the government can be empowered by a demon. It can, be, it can be a demonic force out to oppress Christians, so therefore we should slay, slay the dragon. Well, of course, the funny thing is the Bible says both. Both of those, those things are true. And so we have, to be, we have to be careful, and we have to read the whole Bible before we make our opinions. It is true, it is true, that the apostles experienced the sort of Revelation 13 side of government. They experienced the government as an enemy and as an adversary. Paul had to endure punishment from both Jewish and Roman civil authorities over the course of his life and ministry. In 2 Corinthians 11, 24 to 25, he says this, listen, five times I received at the hands of the, Jew, the 40, Jews the 40 lashes less one. That was the Jewish synagogue punishment. So... Five times, his, his board of elders, you, you might say, his Jewish board of elders, brought him to the front, bent him over a, uh, a waist-high post, and, and he was beaten on the, on, the back of his, on the back of his legs. Five times, I received 40 lashes less one. Three times, he was beaten with rods, which was the Roman civil punishment. And Paul wrote that, actually, before he's a timeline-wise. I know it can be hard to figure out the timeline. Timeline-wise, Paul wrote that before being arrested in Acts 21. So all of that was like prequel. And now we're going to watch over the next eight chapters as Paul makes his way again through the Jewish and Roman systems. While Paul is waiting trial in Rome, Luke tells us near the end of Acts 
He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So Paul's arrested here. He makes his way through the Roman court systems. Even when he gets to the end, when he gets to Rome, he waits another two years. It's a huge stretch of his life when he was in jail. Church history tells us that he was actually released from that particular imprisonment and that he briefly ministered again before being rearrested in A.D. 64 during a brief persecution by the Emperor Nero. And as part of that persecution, the Apostle Paul was executed by beheading on a milepost outside of Rome on the Ostian Way. In the same persecution, church history suggests perhaps within the same month, the Apostle Peter was arrested and executed by crucifixion. Jesus said this would happen. He told the apostles plainly, some of you they will put to death. Jesus understood that when the devil wants to kill someone, he will generally seize the sword of the government. When the devil wanted to kill Jesus, what did he do? Luke tells us, Luke 22, 3-4, then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who is of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. A few demonic agents inside the government puts a sword in Satan's hand. And when he has it, he will inevitably wield it against all those who represent the light. This happened before. It will happen again. And many of us wonder if it is happening right now. And of course, that's why we're talking about this, isn't it? We all feel as though something has changed in this country. Not too long ago, the government was an ally in the propagation of the Christian faith. I'm 49 years old. When I started in school, for the first several years that I was in school, we began every day by doing what, fellow old people? Reciting the Lord's Prayer. It was less than a half a lifetime ago that that was happening. It is unbelievable how much has changed in 40 years. Now, not only is the government not helping us, it feels very much as though they are actively opposing us. They are teaching our children that it is hateful to believe that God created human beings, male and female. They are exposing our kids to conversations about sexuality and gender that their young minds are simply not capable of assimilating. It is no wonder that so many children in our country are suffering from anxiety. That's what happens when you expose children's minds to adult-level dysphoria. That's not just our kids. It feels now like they're coming for our parents as well, right? Are you sick, Grandma? Have you considered medical assistance in dying? What in the world is going on with this country, we wonder? Now, fundamentally, the answer is the thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy I don't think that it is, it is at all controversial to say that some of what is coming out of our government, some of what is being taught in our public schools, some of what is being codified into law in this country is demonic. I don't think that's controversial to say. It has as its intention to steal, kill, and destroy human life and to silence Christian witness. So what do we do about that? Well, there are some churches and pastors right now calling for us to go to war with the government. They're saying it's time for us to 
train our guns, metaphorically speaking, I hope metaphorically speaking, on the government. They're saying it's time for us to take aim at the government. It's time for us to slay the beast. It's time for us to actively oppose the government. Now, listen, I'll say this. I agree with their analysis of the problem, but I do not agree with their proposed solution. And the reason is that I see nothing like that at all, nothing like that at all in the pages of the New Testament. The apostles lived, ministered, and died under hostile government. That's where we feel like we are right now. That's why all all of a sudden, if you're a Bible reader, doesn't it feel like the New Testament is just coming alive to you right now? It's because everything in the New Testament is written to people who are living in similar conditions as you are. The government actually, or the the Bible actually doesn't make a ton of sense, or I I would say this. It doesn't feel as, as obviously sensible and helpful when you're living a fat, peaceful, prosperous life. Almost every verse you read, you're like, what is this? What is this? What is this? You're not having that experience anymore, are you? We're all in, in, this, in this place where it feels like what they're doing is what we're doing, and so we can look to them for an example. And when we do, we see that they did things very differently than is perhaps being proposed. When we look at their example, we notice that they're not taking up arms. They're not starting political action committees. They're not blockading the border. They're not giving angry speeches on the steps of the Roman Senate. They're not printing off vulgar bumper stickers. Not doing any of that. What are they doing? They're preaching. They're praying. They're making disciples. They're planting churches. They're building communities. They are shining the light. Sometimes they're getting arrested. Sometimes they're being executed. All the while, rejoicing that they are counted worthy to suffer on behalf of the name. That's the example they set. And so in just a few minutes we have left, I want to leave you with a little bit of pastoral counsel based on their example for how to relate as a Christian to an increasingly hostile government. Now, everything I'm about to say, I've already shown you from the text. All I'm really doing is trying to transpose their examples into practical guidance. So let me be brief here. I think we should endeavor by the grace that God supplies to relate to our increasingly hostile government in the following way. Number one, with limited obedience. Whenever we can obey the government, we should. We don't want to become known as anti-status. We don't want to become known as anarchists. Because do you know what is worse than bad government? No government. And, and, And I'll tell you, that's no government is not a good scenario for gospel mission. At, I don't know if you've noticed this, but at multiple times in, in the Acts of the Apostles, in the book of Acts, it is the government that actually protects the Apostle Paul from an angry mob. Have you noticed that? So I just say, you know, be careful what you wish for and be careful what you work for. Be a good citizen insofar as you can. Obey the government except when they're trying to force you to disobey God. All right? Secondly, relate to the government with all appropriate respect. Get that angry bumper sticker off the back of your truck. We see you. And don't put it next to a fish sticker, that's for sure, right? (laughs) Have a little bit of wisdom. Careful what you post on social media. It rocks me to see some of what Christian folks put on social media. The first, you know, one post will be, oh, this is my favorite verse, for God so loved the world. The next is, you know, expletive Trudeau, and, and you just, come on. 
be careful what you post on social media. It is amazing how many young people I speak to who have walked away from the Christian faith because of what their grown-up parents are doing on Facebook. Just be careful, right? Show all appropriate honor and respect. Thirdly, relate to the government prophetically, which means, by that I mean, by offering prophetic rebuke. In Acts chapter 2, we're told that the church has now received the Holy Spirit. So there, there is a sense... You know, in, in Peter's speech, there's a sense in which we're all prophets, right? He says, your old people, your young people, your men, your women, they're, they're all going to prophesy. So there is a sense in which the church collectively has a prophetic role. In the Old Testament, of course, the primary role of the prophet was to speak truth to power. Think of the prophet Nathan, who went to David and stuck his finger in David's chest after he committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered her husband. He said, you are the man. You are the robber. You are the abuser of the flock. You used your position and your power to take and defile and despoil. You are the man. And every once in a while, the church needs to do that. The church needs to tell the truth in a prophetic way. And fourthly, we relate to a hostile government with persistence in prayer. In 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 2, Paul says, First of all then, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Do you know what leads to optimal conditions in a country for gospel work and ministry? Not protest, but prayer. Are you praying for our prime minister? Are you praying for our premier? Are you praying for our mayor? Are you praying for the chief of police? According to the Apostle Paul, that's a first order responsibility for the Christian church. We need to do better at that, all of us, myself included. And then lastly, we relate to a hostile government with a recommitment to our core mission and calling as a church. Can I tell you something? When people turn away from the church, Toward political activism, they reveal a fundamental unfaith in the power of the gospel to transform. When, when they say, well, you know, preaching sermons and, you know, meeting, meeting with the ladies for prayer meeting and, and, uh, and you know, leading the kids, and that's not going to change the world. You know what we need to do to change the world? We need to march around City Hall and we need to, you know, honk our horns and we need to, you know, take control of this or that. All I hear you saying is, I don't really believe in the gospel. And Jesus isn't my Lord, right? He's just a flag I wave when I'm angry. Because Jesus told you to do this, right? And I seem to remember Jesus saying this crazy thing. He said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Jesus didn't ask you to fight for him. Jesus didn't ask you to burn down the world so that he could build up the kingdom. He told you what to do. And so maybe we need to recommit to doing it. Now listen, I, am all, I don't want you to overhear this. I'm all for voting. I'm all for making my voice heard, and I'm so thankful that I live in a democracy where we can have a peaceful revolution every five years. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? So make your voice heard. Participate in the process. I'm all for that. But if you want to change the world, 
then you need to be here contributing to the work and mission of the church. You need to be downstairs helping the little ones find and follow Jesus. You need to be out in the portable on Tuesday night helping junior high kids learn to trust their creator and receive the bodies that he has given them. You need to be inviting a neighbor to read through the Bible in a going deeper group. Those are the things. Those are the sorts of things that will push back the darkness. Those are the sorts of things that can and have and will change the world. Those are the sorts of things that will bless people and that will bring honor and glory and esteem to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the counsel, the guidance, the direction of your word. Lord, these are new times to us, but they are not new times to your people. There's so much we can learn from churches, congregations in other parts of the world and other countries. There's so much we can learn from our own history, and there's so much we can learn from the pages of Scripture. Soften our hearts, open our eyes, dig ears for us that we could listen, and give us grace to obey. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.